Hello and welcome to another episode of the Politics Theory of the Podcast. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Kevin Ochiang Okoth. We talked about Kevin's new book, Red Africa, Reclaiming Revolutionary Black Politics. We discussed the concept of Afro-pessimism and why Kevin believes it relies on a fundamentally parochial, US-centric understanding of blackness. And we spoke about how its leading theorists mischaracterise the work of thinkers such as Frantz Fanon to advance the idea of the impossibility of solidarity between black and non-black people. We went on to discuss Kevin's idea of Red Africa, a notion inspired by the second wave of radical African liberation movements and thinkers that were sceptical of the first wave of African socialists, many of whom who had taken the view that traditional communal elements of African culture were inherently socialist. Although the interview was recorded before the escalation of the Israel-Palestine crisis, we do touch on the question of Palestine regarding Frank B. Wilderson III, the most prominent advocate of Afro-pessimism, and his extraordinary claim that Palestinians have more in common with their Israeli oppressors than they do with black people. Kevin Ochianga Koth is a writer based in London. He's part of the Salvage Editorial Collective and is a regular contributor to the London Review of Books. His writing focuses on themes related to anti-racism, anti-imperialism and 20th century anti-colonial thought. Red Africa is his first book. You begin the book by discussing the Roads Must Fall protests that erupted in South Africa in 2015 at the campus of the University of Cape Town. Those protests began with calls to remove the statue of the British imperialist, politician and mining magnate Cecil Rhodes from the campus, before broadening out to become a wider movement challenging the way that colonialism had shaped and continues to shape educational policy in South Africa. And you write in the preface to the book that one thing struck me as odd. Some activists embraced the language of Afro-pessimism, which claimed that there were irreconcilable differences between black people and non-black people of colour. So for those not familiar with the concept of Afro-pessimism, could you talk a bit about how you understand the idea and how it's been propagated by thinkers such as Frank B. Wilderson III and Jared Sexton, two of the writers most closely associated with the idea? The way I understand it, I kind of feel like it came at a time during maybe the Obama years when it seemed that nothing was really changing for black people in the United States. The situation was still as dire as it was before. And I was kind of quite interested in this particular discourse because it wasn't the liberal identity politics that we usually pit leftist politics against. It was almost something that was running parallel to that or running counter to that, right? It was it was not part of the same liberal discourse of, oh, the Obama presidency has changed everything. This is going to improve everything for black people. It almost kind of is like an underbelly of that kind of conversation. And presents itself as more radical, right? Exactly. It presents itself more radical than, for example, the socialist politics. So I was kind of interested in, oh, how do you treat this discourse that presents itself as more radical than socialism, but actually turns out to be what I would almost dare to say reactionary at its underbelly in terms of the politics that it promotes or the lack thereof. So one of the key claims that came out of these early iterations of Afro-pessimism is the particular claim that the condition of black people in general is not characterized by oppression or exploitation, which other social theories might theorize oppression as, for example, feminist thought or Marxist thought might focus on exploitation. But the condition of black people is something quite different. Um, and they propose this base split between what they call the human and the slave. 
So what they do through this is they give an ontological account of blackness, meaning for them that blackness is a condition that is kind of, it's essential, it's timeless. It's this essential quality that black existence has. And it's defined by this idea that the slave, which they equate with the condition of black people, is not part of the realm of humanity. And for them, this uh, expulsion from the realm of humanity of black people precludes their participation also in political life. So it kind of says that there is no possibility of politics for uh, black people in a world that is structured by what they call an anti-black racism. So it's the claim that the world itself is inherently anti-black. The condition they describe, partly which relates to the, the human and the slave distinction, is the condition of social death, which was first articulated by Orlando Patterson in his 1982 book, Slavery and Social Death. But um, for him, it was kind of more of a historical concept. What he was trying to point out is the condition of enslaved black people before abolition, saying that they owned no property or had no legal claims to, to family or land, and therefore they weren't modern subjects and they were excluded from being modern subjects. But what Afro-pessimism then does is take up this historical concept and turns it into an almost philosophical concept that says, this is always the condition of black people and the modern world needs anti-black violence against black people to just reproduce itself. So this is an eternal condition. Black life is always characterized by social death, basically. So I think that's, and I think that's quite, I mean, that's as pessimistic a premise as you can get for a social theory. So obviously, I think for me, looking at many examples where this claim wouldn't be the case or where this doesn't hold up at all, um, made me want to intervene in this conversation. On Patterson and his concept of social death, and it's perhaps worth saying that Patterson has very much distanced himself from Afro-pessimism, despite his work being taken up by people like Wilderson. Would it be fair to say that for thinkers like Patterson, that the concept of social death is more seen as sort of the, uh, the objective of white supremacy? What white supremacy hopes to achieve is the social death of a target population, whether that's uh, black people, say, or, or Jewish people when it comes to German anti-Semitism in the 1930s. But that attempt to achieve social death is always contested and resisted and, and is never fully achieved, except arguably in very extreme cases such as chattel slavery or the period leading up to the Holocaust. Right. And I think it's kind of maybe we'll talk about this a little bit after because it's kind of the, um, the use of this particular example of chattel slavery to make the universal theory of blackness, of race, um, which then it becomes a problem because it does preclude the idea of exactly what you mentioned, resistance, which I think is at the crux of some of the argument of the book is trying to, and I guess that's where the subtitle comes in because it is trying to reclaim a revolutionary black politics, um, so a form of resistance to racism. Yeah, and I think Afro-pessimism in its kind of most extreme forms definitely precludes this possibility of resistance. So on that point you raise about chattel slavery and how Afro-pessimist theorists tend to universalise the experience of slavery and the experience of being black in the United States more generally to the African continent and the African diaspora outside of the US. And you talk about how these thinkers, as you say, place tremendous emphasis on the experience of slavery in the United States, while having relatively little to say about slavery in the Caribbean or in Latin America, uh, or the anti-colonial struggles against imperialism in Africa. When in the case of slavery in the Caribbean and Latin America, purely in numerical terms, this dwarfs chattel slavery in the United States. Can you talk a bit more about that claim about Afro-pessimism's parochialism 
and how it affects their understanding of blackness and their view of the anti-colonial movements in post-war Africa. So I think Afro-pessimism, and particularly its key thinker, Frank Wilderson, makes this pretty clear in his own thought. He says, clearly says that he thinks slavery is relational and not historical. So it almost allows him to move away from the actual specific histories and some of the dynamics those would imply. So he can basically go off and philosophize about blackness in a more abstract kind of ontological way. I guess the equation, as I was saying, about slaveness and blackness relies a lot on the concept of the afterlife of slavery, um, which is the afterlife for them only of US chattel slavery. But once one probes exactly, as you're saying, even the scale and the different dynamics, too, of different plantation societies, etc., we need to open up the debate because it's not, not as easy to find some monolithic, clear blackness always in every particular plantation society. Um, so it doesn't account for all the nuances that came about in these social systems. Um, so if we you know, if we consider, for example, Portuguese America, so which is now Brazil, which ended up with very different racial dynamics than the ones that are used to then theorize for Afro-pessimism. So I think if we want to really take seriously the claim that they, that they are, they do claim to be theorizing the afterlife of slavery. And if we do take this premise seriously, then we're really missing a lot if we, if we aren't interested in how slavery shaped the politics of different social formations um, across the world. Um, and I think the only way to really understand race and racialization is to pay attention to those specificities and how these processes of racialization, for example, play different roles in facilitating the oppression and exploitation of particular parts of the population. And on the anti-colonial movements in Africa, is there one example that you think particularly highlights the way in which the Afro-pessimist lens isn't really helpful when thinking about what later occurred on the African continent, as opposed to the experience of slavery and, and the Middle Passage and so on? Sure. And I think that's kind of where the particular anti-colonial tradition that I take up in the book comes in. Um, you know, you have someone like Eduardo Monlan, who is the leader of Frelimo, the independence party in Mozambique who produced very interesting studies of the social formations of um, and the racial dynamics of colonial Mozambique, so Mozambique under Portuguese colonialism, but who had also worked in the United States um, and done sociological research on race relations there. So I think when you read that work, it becomes way more difficult because there is, for example, a mestido population um, or a mixed race population that occupies a middle dynamic between what are seen as black Africans and the kind of Portuguese working class who used uh, Mozambique as an emigration outlet. And this produces, even in the liberation struggle, a very particular dynamic where we can't say it's black people and everyone else, but actually it's this social formation that's shaped by the nuances in the way people are racialized. And they're racialized that way because of labor exploitation. Oftentimes, you know, in the Mozambican case, there'd be different legal classifications um, that map onto different types of forced labor, for example. So it's these kind of things where um, a monolithic blackness cannot help us understand the social formation, because we wouldn't be able to make sense of what the social dynamics of that society were if we just distinguish between black people and everyone else. It's way too much of a simplification to, to even be able to properly understand, understand colonial Mozambique. You describe in the book how the work of Wilderson and Sexton was wildly successful and, and very well received, at least initially. It's since been the subject of a, a lot of criticism and debunking. But why do you think Afro-pessimism did get such a warm reception at first? Uh, and was there anything particularly surprising or, or maybe telling about who in particular welcomed the concept? 
for me, looking from the outside, it has a popular appeal because it is the theory of despair. Many people have written about this since it's kind of got something to do with black people in the United States losing faith in the idea of a post-racial country. A long reaction too to um, some of the perceived failures of the civil rights era. Small improvements in individual upward mobility didn't lead to a better situation for the majority of black people in the last, let's say, 50 years. There's an ongoing cycle of state violence against black people, which seems never ending, really, when you kind of look at the news cycle. So it is easy for a pessimistic theory like Afro-pessimism to seem convincing because these things seem eternal. They seem never ending because we kind of encounter these forms of violence over and over and we see them over and over again. I thought there was a time when, uh, in the summer of 2020, when many people rose up for the Black Lives Matter protests in the wake of George Floyd's killing, where this pessimism seemed to have been overtaken by political events, actual political events on the ground, where, you know, you had millions of people rising up with black people across the world, and many non-black people rising up with black people in the United States across the world, um, something which would be theoretically impossible for Afro-pessimism. But I think there is a way in which this pessimism or these theories of despair might be able to return just in the way that that spirit of revolt or rebellion has faded and there's a quick return to what is quote-unquote a normal status quo. But I think what I want to, kind of the intervention is partly also saying that this is a danger in taking up, in a, in a situation of despair, taking up something that I believe is an, almost an anti-political strategy, which bolsters the status quo by foreclosing the possibility of political resistance. Um, when, you know, instead there's something else that would be required. And I think that's a big argument of the book is what are needed is sometimes organizations, institutions, structures that help us transform these moments of resistance into lasting change. Whereas what Afro-pessimism gives us is absolutely no possibility of that. Do you ever think that some of the criticism that Afro-pessimism has come in for is a, a little bit harsh or, or, or overdone? Because as you say, it seems pretty reasonable that one should sympathise with the instinct that leads to the Afro-pessimist position because of, as you describe, the very seemingly intractable character of the violence experienced by black people in the United States and, and the horrendous scale of, of, of incarceration and, and so on. Yeah, and I think, I think that's why, I mean, partly initially I'd written an essay about Afro-pessimism, which was a lot more polemical in its tone, but I think in this book, I took an approach of taking it at face value and taking it quite seriously and almost trying to, trying to historicize where it comes from. And, you know, that's the part where I talk a little bit about the black campus movements of the 1960s, because I wanted to kind of find out into what institutional context also this discourse emerged out of, what allows this to flourish. Because I think taking a discourse like that seriously means both taking it seriously on a philosophical level and second, taking it seriously on a historical interpretative level of seeing what are the dynamics that produce this. Because I think there is something about Afro-pessimism where the point is not necessarily always, which has kind of happened to take down its main proponents. It's more a concern about the language that's filtering into activist movements and activist spaces. And, you know, despite the many criticisms that have been leveled at Afro-pessimism, its language and, and concepts continue to kind of permeate the way we talk about blackness today. So I think it's good to try and take it very, very seriously and take these claims very seriously so we can better understand why it came to gain the popularity that it did at one point and why the concepts it coined continue to exercise influence over activists, academic scholars. 
One of the more notorious passages in Wilderson's 2020 work of auto theory, which is titled Afro-Pessimism, is where he recounts a conversation he had with a Palestinian friend who described being humiliated by Israeli soldiers and that the humiliation ran even deeper if the Israeli soldier in question was a black Ethiopian Jew. And he writes that, In the collective unconscious, Palestinian insurgents have more in common with the Israeli state and civil society than they do with black people. And this is part of his broader claim against people of colour, a term he uses to describe people who are neither white nor black, and who he characterises as junior partners to white people in the enslavement of black people. What's your view on that pretty incendiary example that Wilderson gives and the significance he attaches to it? I think there's a difficulty also in this kind of, I think it also has something to do with form specifically, this example, because his work is a work of auto theory. So we take the story at face value. Um, He says that his co-worker said this particular phrase. And then I think, as far as I remember, when you continue reading the passage, there's no response to Frank Wilderson's retort from his co-worker Samir. Um, And the rest just unfolds as an internal monologue by Frank Wilderson himself. Um, So when I read that, I have many other follow-up questions that I would like to ask. Um, How was the statement meant? How was it delivered? What, what What was the precise wording of this statement? But again... For basically what for Afro-pessimism is a central claim is that there can be no solidarity between black people and exactly as you said, junior partners, which is specifically everyone else who is not black. And I think this for me was a very, very worrying claim because that's where kind of the invocation of the Bandung era and third world solidarity comes in. Because basically the argument that Afro-pessimism is making is that those solidarities are impossible, right? So for them, Angela Davis' support for the Palestinian struggle is uh, an impossibility or should not be the focus of her radical black politics. Um, When, you know, there was a time when those things were seen as having contradictions, sure, but not seen as insurmountable contradictions to the global anti-imperialist organizing. So I think that there is a way in which that kind of severs part of the valuable lessons that were learned at some point in the 20th century and just kind of ignores these and tries to say that we can't have these types of solidarities anymore because the world now is anti-black and there can never be solidarities between black people and non-black people of colour, for example. And do you think that that criticism and and description of non-black people of colour as junior partners to white oppression, um, do you feel like there's something else going on there, that there's some other kind of unspoken reason for that hostility that Wilderson evinces? Yeah, I mean, I I do wonder because it's kind of, you know, again, it's, I think, a lack of historicization of, of course, there have been times when in multiracial coalitions, there have been struggles between the different elements of it and the different people within those organizations. And that's not something that anyone wants to obscure. But, you know, equally historical, historically, there's so many examples, you know, I would draw for, for example, Kenyan trade union movement, where there is Asian workers organizing for black Kenyan workers pushing for them to be able to unionize in a multiracial trade union. Um, so I think there's plenty of examples that go the other way, too. So I think basically having a, a rejection of that solidarity, that's just a general rejection, I feel like is, is kind of an unfounded claim. As to where it might come from, I think it particularly also comes from a, a, um, a place of radical political organizing by black people in the United States, and their kind of perceived marginalization in, for example, in, in leftist spaces throughout the 20th century. So I guess maybe that's part of where, where that impulse comes from. 
Wilderson and other Afro-pessimist thinkers also have a particular animus towards Marxism. And you write in the book that, as I read and discussed Afro-pessimism's key thinkers, I kept on encountering the claim that Marxism had nothing to offer black people, or that it was inherently Eurocentric and therefore should be discarded. Can you expand on their objections to Marxism and and whether you think they're not altogether wrong in viewing Marx and, and Marxist thinkers subsequently? as being insufficiently attentive to race and the importance of the slave trades to the development of capitalism, even if that's not a theme that Marx entirely ignored. Yeah, I think that's why in the book there's a long section on Cedric Robinson, for example, because I don't think the claim that, um, that Marxism is Eurocentric or that it has little to offer black radical movements, it's not unique to Afro-pessimism. It's a broader claim that's actually made quite a lot through kind of a lot of black radical spaces. But I do think it's 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 very much a very much a straw man version of of Marxism, which is uh, just a very orthodox kind of Marxism. But their argument essentially is that uh, Marxism failed to understand how racism, um, anti-black racism in particular, isn't an ideology that can just be refuted or something. But the claim is that Marxists haven't understand that it's fundamental to class relations themselves. So that's the general often claim. Wilderson, Wilderson's specific claim is that. Marx failed to recognize, he says this quote-unquote, that capital was kick-started by the rape of the African continent, um, and that it's as close to capital's primary desire as is wage depression. But I think this division, it's kind of not so neat, because if we look at Marx's work, there is a recognition of, of that, although it's not theorized as much as perhaps it could have been. But there is a big recognition, and I think what they, the problem, I think, that Afro-pessimism and other critiques of Marxism have is that they only use this one straw man version of Marx to talk about Marxism in general. So it kind of erases all the contributions of black Marxists that have existed throughout, specifically in the 20th century, who did do all this work. I mean, we're talking about someone like Eric Williams, for example, who wrote Capitalism and Slavery. And it's, you know, and then I, I guess it's, you know, saying that there's nothing, that a Marxian framework has nothing to offer us for the analysis of, of race. And particularly, for example, of how slavery operated in the afterlives of slavery, um, completely ignores those those contributions, which are Marxist contributions to black historiography. And you see no engagement with people like Eric Williams or, or Walter Rodney, say. Yeah, and it's kind of it's it's almost as if some of these people never existed or never theorized anything, or which I find rather rather strange. Or sometimes people are cited but not really discussed in in their texts. So it's you know you might find a small citation but not an actual engagement with their work. And there's also, I suppose, the treatment of Franz uh, Fanon, who they do draw on, and, and I think maybe we'll come on to that in a little bit. But you've already mentioned the Bandung Conference of 1955, which brought together delegates from 29 Asian and African countries in Indonesia for the first ever Afro-Asian conference. And part of the context of that conference was Indonesia being led at the time by Sukarno, who was one of the leading champions of the non-aligned movement until he was deposed in an extraordinarily bloody Western-backed coup in 1965. And you argue that Afro-pessimism is is very much contrary to the anti-imperialist spirit of Bandung. And you write in the book that the most concerning aspect of Afro-pessimism is that it precludes the possibility of the kind of anti-imperialist solidarity championed by Bandung-era movements like the Non-Aligned Movement, the Tricontinental, or the Third World Liberation Front. Could you say something on the significance of the Bandung Conference itself and and those other movements of the era, and how they had an outlook which, in your view, is very contrary to the spirit of Afro-pessimism? 
Um, so I mean, the Bandung Conference, as you've already mentioned, the first uh, Afro-Asian conference in Bandung, Indonesia. Um, nations in the global south could meet, discuss their shared vision for what they believed a, a post-imperial world could look like without interference for the West. It's always crucial to not be too idealizing about the Bandung moment. And I think there's been so much critical literature about it as, you know, Indonesia itself being an occupying force while hosting the, the Bandung conference. So there are these contradictions that exist as, you know, different national states dominating or occupying other spaces while kind of making this claim to sovereignty at the Bandung conference. But as kind of a political moment and as a first kind of meeting of the global south, it basically enshrined the idea of the third world in, in like a global political imaginary as a political, as a political player, as uh, a block of countries that had their own vision of what they would want their self-determination to mean. And as part of this cycle, I go into various different movements to describe um, iterations of this throughout the 20th century, you know, because Bandung was, there wasn't much African participation at Bandung. So, you know, later you have the All African People's Conference in Kuruma's Ghana um, in 1958, which actually just more specifically addresses the concerns of African anti-colonial activists and black diaspora activists um, who had participated in Bandung to some extent but who hadn't been the main participants of the Bandung Conference. Then, you know, in 1961, you have the uh, establishment of the Non-Aligned Movement in Belgrade, Serbia, by a, a range of non-aligned leaders, Sukarno, you have Tito from Yugoslavia, you have Nkrumah from Ghana, um, Nehru from India, and Nasser from Egypt. You know, these moments are responses in the Cold War showing that the ideology of like radical nationalism in the global South couldn't be reduced to you know, the poles of the Cold War. So the point was to give a political voice to these nations who'd been uh, relegated to like a, a secondary status in the international arena. But, you know, central to this project was the idea of a third world, which is runs very contrary to the, you know, the kind of Afro-pessimist idea that there can be no solidarity between black people and non-black people of color, for example, because the whole project is premised on the idea that this solidarity is possible and that it is necessary. And I think, you know, even the most radical iteration, I guess, of this third world spirit we see in, in, in OSPAL, the Organization of Solidarity with the Peoples of Asia, Africa and Latin America in um, Havana, Cuba, founded after the Tricontinental Conference in Cuba, which tried to give third world nationalism, which at, up to that point had had its own contradictions. And, you know, some of it had been bourgeois nationalists, some of it had been radical nationalists, there were socialists and communists involved, but it tried to give it a more explicitly socialist ideology and more robust institutional forms to try and go beyond vague expressions of third world solidarity and make it a real program of political, economic, military collaboration. But, you know, I think the historicization of why this particular mode of, of thinking about politics faded is we have to be quite, quite clear about, you know, the context that in which someone like Afro-pessimists are intervening in, because they're intervening in a geopolitical context where the idea of the third world hasn't held any sway for a very long time, you know, since uh, maybe the 70s, starting with the coup in Chile, which ousted Salvador Allende's socialist government, um, brought Augusto Pinochet to power. And from that moment onwards, with the expansion of neoliberal reforms throughout the global south, uh, structural adjustment programs being enforced on, on countries that were in debt crisis and were struggling with high commodity prices, so took up these loans um, from, from these uh, international organizations um, that basically hollowed out the state and hollowed out state capacity. So loads of these early nationalist projects weren't possible after the 70s anymore, really. 
we have to be honest about the political context in which these discourses are emerging into. And I think, you know, the same way um, I talk a little bit in the book about decolonial studies and the discourses that emerge in the wake of, of this third world project after its decline through kind of the emer- expansion of American hegemony, neoliberal economic policy. And I think what, what I think in the book as well, it's like a lot of these leaders who kind of champion that third world solidarity and also cross-racial solidarity in that third world project were, were assassinated too. Going back to Frantz Fanon and how the Afro-pessimist thinkers have taken him up. So Fanon was a Martinique and black radical thinker and psychiatrist writing in the 1950s who's been tremendously influential on the left uh, since. And you argue that the Afro-pessimist invocation of Fanon as well as other radical thinkers such as Hortense Spillers is based on a mischaracterization of their work. And, and you write that when reading over Afro-pessimist bibliographies, one can be forgiven for thinking that the sheer number of references to radical scholarship reflects a close reading and consideration of the text in question. This is not the case. Um, So can you talk about how, in your opinion, Fanon in particular is misrepresented by the Afro-pessimists and also how they prefer to draw from his 1952 book, Black Skin, White Masks, rather than the 1961 work, The Wretched of the Earth? I think the mischaracterization of different thinkers, uh, there's been many responses to Afro-pessimism's uh, ability to do that, to co-opt that. Uh, there's a good piece by Gloria Wecker, which talks a little bit about Horton Spiller's work, um, which I couldn't do in this book, but which I'd like to engage with Spiller's work in more depth than how it's been mischaracterized by Afro-pessimism at some point, especially in terms of its erasure of taking up these discourses like Spiller's or taking up these thinkers like Spiller's and then essentially creating a discourse that's extremely masculinist and works very much against the black feminist politics. In the case of Fanon, the split, so it's this very rigid split between an early Fanon who's interested in the condition, what they say is the condition of the black slave, is almost focused only on the condition of black people in the diaspora, who is the interesting thinker, whereas the later Fanon is a more reductive, anti-colonial, nationalist thinker, and that's actually, to them, the work that's not particularly interesting. But I guess there is trouble with reading reading it as the split rather than a continuity or a progression towards an anti-colonial politics. At first, you know, Fanon arrives in, arrives in France from Martinique, or it's the shock. Uh, maybe perhaps we'll talk about negritude still a little bit, but it's the very common shock of being from a, a relative educated elite in Martinique and seeing oneself as French and arriving in France and finding out that the French don't see you as French, necessarily, even though that's how you perceive yourself, because he's a black Martinican. So a lot of the early work is trying to come to terms with those experiences. But then there is a shift when he arrives in, in or as he lives in France too, because he becomes aware of the plight of Algerians in France. At first, he's concerned only with the condition of, more so with the condition of black people in living in France, especially black Caribbean people. But then he becomes way more interested in in the Algerian independence struggle. And as he has both his psychiatric work and his theoretical work start to grapple with these issues uh, more intensely. And then later in his life, there is this big turn towards the Algerian independence struggle. And I think denying that transition from one to the other of almost recognizing the black, the struggle of a black Martinican in France as part of the same anti-racist, anti-imperialist struggle as the Algerian independence war. It's denying that capacity to try to make the one recognition out of, out of these earlier theorizations of, of blackness in France. Again, 
basically just denies his ability to progress towards, towards a radical revolutionary politics and a more universalist politics and tries to inscribe Fanon into quite narrow parochialism, which I think is just is, is inaccurate if we, if we really, really consider his work. And it's not even as if it's solely a case of picking and choosing, right? It's not just that they focus on the later work and ignore the earlier work. But in your view, they even mischaracterize the work that they do like, such as black-skinned white masks. Right. So there's a more emphasis on ontological blackness, that, that Fanon is a theorist who's, who's grappling with an essential blackness, what it means to be black. But I think Lewis Gordon, for example, the, the philosopher, has made a convincing argument that Fanon's thought is actually more phenomenological. It's concerned with the experience of being racialized as black in French society. But I think back to, back to Fanon's later work, I think it is because it is, again, talking about that point of resistance, because it does become quite, it becomes more practical about the issues of anti-colonial struggle and it becomes more, more about politics or revolutionary politics itself rather than a meditation or a philosophical meditation on the meaning of blackness which is Afro-pessimism's emphasis, because it's given up on these forms of resistance and it is just a more solemn, reflective discourse because it believes that's the only thing you can do. So in contrast to the Afro-pessimists disparaging of or or downplaying of the anti-colonial struggle in Africa, in the book you seek to revive the memory of the thinkers and movements and activists you describe as being part of a tradition you call Red Africa. And as part of that move, you contrast what are sometimes described as the first and second waves of African socialism. And it's very much the latter that you see as being part of this Red Africa tradition that you describe. If we start with the first wave, which you characterise as being in the humanist Marxist tradition, and which you say was based on the conviction that traditional communal elements of African culture were inherently socialist and could serve as the basis for an egalitarian programme of national development and which you also describe as being very much informed by negritude, uh, which you've mentioned already, uh, this sort of framework of cultural critique and literary theory developed in the 1930s, primarily by francophone intellectuals of the African diaspora. So could you talk about that first wave of African socialism, how you characterise it, and how you see Leopold Senghor, the Senegalese poet and cultural theorist who became the first president of Senegal, as being a real sort of exemplar of that first wave? Sure. So I feel like the, the characterization of those two phases is, is not as, again, not as clear cut as it may seem, but I think it's helpful for thinking through the different pro- historical processes, right? Because there's, we have the examples of Nkrumah in Ghana, Nyerere, Tanzania, um, Senghor in Senegal, but then we also have Modibo Keita in that first wave, who is way more interested in an orthodox Marxism, Leninism, and held on to that for much longer than the others. So the split is not necessarily that clear, but I think it's really helpful for thinking through a particular iteration of African socialism. And this first wave emerged mainly in early independence movements in the 1950s and 60s, as newly independent governments tried to create a new future, envision a new future, a future that would once, for all, once and for all break with, uh, with the legacies, with the racial, political and economic legacies of colonialism. But they drew their ideas from, from negritude as a project of trying to build a cohesive national project. So the claim, I think Robin D.G. Kelly put this really well when he characterized it as, the claim was that pre-colonial African society were not only uh, anti-capitalist with an E, e, so prior to capitalist, but also anti-capitalist in themselves. And this leads to a very romantic notion of 
African socialism based on traditional village life or communal village life. But I think what for me, when, when reading back these histories, oftentimes what, what this does, what this romantic notion of a pre-colonial socialism does is empty almost the, empty the socialism of its revolutionary content. And I think it's not only a theoretical position, but now we'll be getting back to Senghor, for example, it's also a political mechanism or it's a political device because oftentimes this was used to present oneself as a socialist or a radical outwards while repressing a leftist opposition in the country itself. So to do this, oftentimes to silence these leftist opposition, the claim was used that as we're getting back to Afro-pessimism or sometimes decolonial studies, critique of Marxism, oftentimes the, the claim was made by some leaders that there was something un-African or Eurocentric about Marxism and that there was a need for a different socialism. Um, the African socialism. But yeah, just as an example, I think we could, we would have Senghor, who was um, a leading Nicotude poet in the 1930s. He had a very much an ontological conception of blackness too. He, there's an, something, there's an inherent, there's a black culture, there's something inherently, there's an essence of Africanness and blackness that, that we can capture. But as leader of, of, of Senegal, he then becomes the first president of independent Senegal. But then the emphasis in his poetic revolt was very much on reclaiming an African essence, because that's, that's what a lot of the Negatude project was about. It was an aesthetic reclaiming of African beauty and, and, and a value of African life, which in itself is, is a, was a crucial project at the time. But then they become these contradictions where someone who claims to be an African socialist like Senghor had a very close relationship with uh, Georges Pompidou, close relate, very francophile, very much an advocate of a, of a close union between Senegal, a former colony, and France, its former colonizer, which aids and abets French neocolonial interest in a newly independent country, which I think very much runs country, counter to the idea of a, of a socialist politics. So that's what I see as this first wave, having these examples where there was a very overt outwards presentation of socialism, but actually what happens then in the practical day-to-day -day politics of it had very little to do with, with an actual socialist program. But again, the narrative is not as clear-cut. Nkrumah, for example, as I, I mentioned this in the book as well, it goes back and forth between, at one point, praising the socialist elements of pre-colonial village life and then uh, maybe you know, I compare two editions of, of one of his books. In one edition, he's saying when he's, when he's still... Basically, in one edition, he's, saying he's praising pre-colonial village life. Then in another edition, which comes after he was ousted in a 1966 US-backed military coup. And then he turns to a more overt Marxian politics and disavows this romantic notion of the African socialists, which was that they, Africa was socialist in itself. People didn't need to do anything to build a socialist politics. So you go on then in the book to contrast that first wave of humanist socialism with what you characterise as this more radical second wave, more attuned, as you say, to the principles of scientific socialism. Can you say a bit more about that second wave and, and who were the key figures involved? Yeah, so I think, again, not quite as clear cut because I begin talking about the second wave of African socialism or what is called Afro-Marxism. But if there's two strands to it too, there's kind of in countries like Burkina Faso, Ethiopia, for example. It's more militaristic than revolutionary. It happens a little bit after countries in, in uh, Burkina Faso, for example, after the country has already gained independence. Um, so this is like a second response to dissatisfaction with the initial 
process of decolonization. But apart from this, from these countries, there's also, you know, the ones that I think had the most radical politics out of that wave is the independence movements from the Portuguese colonies. Because even though a lot of African countries had already achieved independence by the 70s, for example, the Portuguese colonies hadn't because it, Portugal was under dictatorship. And the realities of Portuguese colonialism in particular radicalized these, these movements uh, simply because Portugal was actually quite a poor colonial power. Yes, and unusually dependent on its colonies, right? Right, exactly. And not just dependent on its colonies as a site of exploitation of raw materials, but also, which makes a quite unique case as, as an emigration site for its own working class. So as somewhere where its own working class could basically be put and prosper because there was a lot of impoverishment in Portugal itself. I think the reason I think that this particular wave of African socialism was more radical or like this particular iteration of or, or Afro-Marxism was more radical than the other is because Portugal itself was used as this emigration outlet. The local petit bourgeois class became increasingly redundant and became actually, instead of being differentiated from the masses, which sometimes happened in the first wave of African socialism, had a closer relationship with the mass of the people. We see this in Amakar Cabral's trajectory. Perhaps we can talk a little bit about him as well. And I think within this tradition, and the reason I try to highlight this particular tradition from Portuguese uh, for Portuguese Africa as well, because there was a very skillful navigation of the Cold War, the geopolitics of the Cold War, and these were people who didn't uncritically embrace orthodox Marxism-Leninism, but rather adapted Marxism to the needs of the revolutionary struggle in their particular locales. And how do you see the role of the Soviet Union and China at the time? Would it be right to say that on the whole, the second wave of African socialists had more sympathy with the Soviet and Chinese projects, obviously differing in different countries and over time, and, and bearing in mind, of course, the Sino-Soviet split? Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely think there's a closer engagement with those as the as the powers that would. But then again, it's I try to get into some of the nuances in the book as well as much as I can. The diplomatic skill aspect of it is sometimes there was the complications of who was backed by who and who would align with what geopolitical power were never never very clear sp clearly split. So an organization might you know like Frelimo might receive funding from the Ford Foundation or something, and then it might receive funding from the Soviets like two years later just because different political figures uh, gain control over that movement. So it's never as clear-cut as that. But I do think in its, in its specific orientation, these movements were much closer aligned to a Marxist politics. And does that then partly become an excuse for their suppression, that they are depicted as perhaps to some extent, not that this is accurate, as the tools of Soviet imperialism? Yeah, and I think, but talking about this particular tradition, it's, I mentioned before about political assassinations, it's Amakar Kabal was assassinated. Another person I talk about in the book, Eduardo Mondlane, assassinated uh, too. But oftentimes it would just be accusations of being aligned with some other power in, in the geopolitical power struggles of the Cold War. In Mozambique, for example, with the, with the case of Eduardo Mondlane, for example, it was disgruntled people within the party who had also maybe something to do with it, but then also Portuguese secret agents. So I think it, it was very complicated time to navigate the geopolitics of the Cold War. So you describe how the defeat of the second wave enabled the victory across much of Africa of these sort of comprador local elites that collaborated with Western states and multilateral organisations such as the IMF and the World Bank 
and implemented the neoliberal reforms that they had developed and, and advocated for. This is obviously a, a very speculative question, but what about if that hadn't occurred? What were the limits of the possible, do you think? Would it have been a, a best case scenario of a successful East Asian style developmentalism accompanied by a lot of authoritarianism? Or do you think there was a possibility for a more expansive and democratic vision of socialism being fulfilled? I think the vision for a more democratic socialism was definitely there. Whether it could have actually survived within the context of, you know, let's say the 1980s, like we were talking about before the decline of the Third World Project, whether it would have survived the decline of the Third World Project is another question altogether. I think more so, it, rather than the speculative account of whether this could have worked, is more what were the politics that it was gesturing to and what were the experiments that were being, that were being put in place. I talk a little bit in the book about the liberated zones in Guinea-Bissau and, and Mozambique and the idea of having those being sites of social experimentation. Oftentimes we know in the idea of like an autonomous zone, but that was almost an expanding autonomous zone that did have as, as its aim capturing of the state and the expansion beyond that and maybe a pan-African politics beyond that. But they was using those as sites of democratic experimentation and seeing how you can structure new social relations for the society you want to build in the course of the liberation struggle. But again, I think the reversal of oftentimes the violent erasure of that tradition, not just intellectually, but politically, lets us have to speculate on, on whether this really would have been able to survive as a, as a politics on the state level in the context of 1980s structural adjustment. Just on the liberated zones that you described, could you say a bit more on the nature of the social and economic experiments that took place in those areas? Yeah, I think oftentimes the, the point would be to, I mean, first of all, because these are national liberation struggles, it was the difficulty of these zones would be used to bring pe different part, um, linguistic and ethnic groups from, from different parts of the country together to basically organize a common shared nationalist project because you don't really have this idea of the nation before that. So they're trying to trying to build a nation so that's like one step where you're trying to build a sense of na national linguistic cohesion or exchange also between different parts of the population um there were a lot of experiments in changes in gendered labor relations different people picking up different work women being allowed to work in different ways and participate women's battalions too being participating in the liberation war which then changed their own role within, within the domestic sphere, for example. And so it's looking at projects like that. But I think what I also mention is to never be too idealistic about romanticizing these projects because, you know, much of what we do know about the zones is also there's somewhat too little information still about what actually took place and how far-reaching these reforms were. Because oftentimes the reports were as part of the liberation struggle. So this was propaganda meant to go out to build international support for the liberation struggle. So obviously it builds, a, it builds a rosier picture than it might have been the case. But I do think they point to a different way of doing politics and a different way of struggling for an independent state because in the course of struggle, a new society is slowly but gradually being formed. But yeah, I think the tragic, the tragic outcome of some of these is that a lot of times the changes in social relations were reversed after after the assassinations of some leaders. And even if the parties took over power, often in some cases they'd be an authoritarian turn by the next leadership of those parties, which very much reversed the democratic um, gains that were made in the liberated zones. You've already mentioned Amilcar Cabral, who led the independence movement of Guinea-Bissau and the Cape Verde Islands. 
uh, as you describe, uh, former Portuguese colonies. You write in the book about how Cabral is much less discussed on the left today than someone like Frantz Fanon. Can you explain why you think Cabral's thought and his life is relatively neglected on the left today? Yeah, so I, I think it's actually, since first writing, I, I do think it's like in recent years, there has been a, a tendency to pick up his work, but almost often from an activist place, from I've seen it picked up quite a lot in people's artistic practices, but less so in, in, terms, of, in terms of scholarship. I think it's just less, because it's the nature of the writing itself. Some of Fanon's writing that we have is written as a thesis, for example. It's an, it's an academic work which lends itself to academic study. Whereas a lot of Cabral's work is written in the midst of the liberation struggle and is trying to theorize the struggle as it's going on. Um, so I, I feel like sometimes maybe just as a form, it lends itself less or it, it becomes less appealing to study as an intricate academic text. But as not a manual per se, but as like a, an example of how to marry theory and practice in the common phrasing of those terms, his scholarship or his thought provides, I think, a, a real guiding light. So I think there is just the part because he is not a philosophical figure in that way. He doesn't have the same turn of phrase as someone like Fanon has, for example. So it's just an interesting difference stylistically between the two writers. Although I think there's not that much difference then in the end between some of Fanon's later writings, which are journalistic writings for the Algerian, for the FLN newspaper and like Cabral's writings, for example. But just on, the, on Cabral being picked up and why I think, perhaps also why I think he should be picked up more is because he's a bit of an antidote to, to some of the cliched presentations of anti-colonial figures in the 20th century, who are only obsessed with like growth, developmentalism, taking control of a capitalist state, or et cetera, et cetera. Whereas his politics points to a very different way of, of doing, of national liberation. Do you think that as well as Fanon's writing being more easily assimilated in the academy, do you think it also reflects just generally the left's experience of defeat and the fact that we uh, very rarely find ourselves in positions in which we're trying to, you know, exercise power or, or trying to navigate the complexities and contradictions of that kind of situation? Because obviously Cabral became a leader of a country. He was fighting a war of liberation. And that's a pretty distant situation from anything most leftists in uh, the UK, say, experience. Whereas the problems Fanon was grappling with maybe seem at least somewhat more applicable to the contemporary situation. Yeah, and I guess, but I guess that also comes with another question that's, I mean, that's also part of the book is there is a, a, a Eurocentrism still on, on the left and specifically Marxist thought that sometimes fails to pick up these figures when when actually they'd be they'd be quite useful people to think with and think through. Because, for example, with the, the idea of revolutionary disappointment, it's, yes, it's, it's, it's difficult sometimes to pick it, f- figure, to picture this position of being in, or like at least so close to taking power that you would need to think through these strategic aims. But this doesn't have to be the, place, uh, the case across the global south, for example. It doesn't have to be the case everywhere. It's very much, there is a need to also think beyond, beyond the European leftist experience of disappointment. Um, when we're like approaching these thinkers. But yeah, I, I think it's also specifically with, with Cabral. I think what I wonder is why he, for example, hasn't been picked up much more in the, like an eco-socialist debate because it's, it's a Marxist thinker who was engaged in the anti-colonial struggle, who had a background in agronomy. His first job was working for the Portuguese colonial government as an agronomist and setting up experimental farms, for example. So the, there's like a deep ecological bent to his thought that it's 
not that we can get the answers from him, but I think would be a very productive way to think through the relationships between Marxism and an ecological politics. So towards the end of the book, you write about André Blouin, who was born in what is now the Central African Republic. And you discuss her book, My Country, Africa, Autobiography of the Black Passionaria. Blouin took part in various anti-colonial struggles before eventually becoming a member of the cabinet of Patrice Lumumba in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Can you talk about why you find her such an appealing figure and also about her relationship with Lumumba, who she was not shy of being critical of? Yeah, sure. So I think why I find her particularly interesting is because she points to a tradition of a very radical anti-colonial feminism, which oftentimes doesn't come up in, in the grand histories of national liberation, which are extremely, extremely masculinist. We have the founding fathers of the nations. When we talk about the first wave of African socialism, for example, like Konda or like a Nkrumah, and it's always like a story about the founding fathers of these independent nations. But actually, her story tells us that, oh no, actually, women were central to organizing, to even making this nationalist project possible in the first place, and that they played like significant roles. Like the women's movements were were some of the biggest recruiting mechanisms for the anti-colonial struggle. And her life basically gives us a better idea of how important these women's movements were. I mean, also, particularly, just as an aside, I think what I found interesting is her conceptualization of national liberation, which moves across, as you've mentioned, various countries. So it's, it's Guinea, Madagascar, Central African Republic, not what is now the Democratic Republic of Congo, and she's active politically in each of this and sees them as this part of the same political project. So there's not even this narrow view of like the nation as like belonging, linguistic, ethno-linguistic communities. It's a very expansive notion of what national liberation is. Um, she comes across as a very, is often talked about as being a very great speaker, very dynamic organizer, and who contributed a lot to the independence project in the DRC. After Congo, uh, Congolese independence, she became Patrice Lumumba, the first prime minister, prime minister of the DRC's chief of protocol and worked with him very closely in his office. But she was exiled after, after Lumumba's murder and the uh, military coup led by, uh, Lumo, uh, led by Mobutu. I think the, just the last part of your question where I think that it's just taken from, as part of a book where she's questioning because Throughout her memoirs, she talks a lot about the different sacrifices she made for the anti-colonial struggle. And oftentimes those sacrifices come at the expense of her family life, for example, having to leave a, a, a sick child or having to leave a partner or having to... You, you, there's constantly decisions that where she prioritizes the anti-colonial struggle over her, her family life. And I think there's like some slight gestures that some like Lumumba wasn't able to do that in the same way. But... What I also find particularly interesting about the life of André Blouin is part of the, part of the things that we know are from, are from her memoirs, uh, as uh, that's the best account we have of her political life. But it's a very contentious memoir because it was dictated to an American, a, a white American writer who, who, then, who then transcribed it. It was published by a publisher that had very distant, but I think had some connections to the CIA, and I think she, if I'm not mistaken, she tried to sue and block the publication at some point because it was, she felt that there were some misrepresentations in it. So I've, there's been a lot of debate about whether she wanted this to be an actual political statement of an anti-colonial feminism or what it turned out being is having a more, being presented in a, in a de-radicalized way and having a more personal, reflective tone. 
But I think nonetheless, those politics, regardless of what the outcome of that is, her radical anti-colonial feminism does come out. It just shines through regardless of how that text has been transcribed, I think. So I think it just points to, and I, I guess it's also when you see the reversal of a lot of feminist projects after the decline of the tradition, I guess I call Red Africa, with the assassination of some of these leaders and the um, reversal of some of the projects of the liberated zones, for example, or the achievements of André Blouin's organizing in, in, the, in the Democratic Republic of Congo. I think the politics, that feminist politics, gets erased after, after that process and later down the line points to uh, an aspect of the anti-colonial struggle that is not necessarily always emphasized, but that was definitely there. So if we come up to the present moment, do you see much evidence right now of the formation of greater links between leftist movements in African countries and in European countries and in North America? Because I think one very striking thing when reading about the history of the new left in the US or in parts of Europe is how political struggles in African countries seemed to occupy such a significant place and, and vastly more so than seems to be the case today, in spite of the much greater ease with which connections can actually be made because of the obvious advances in communicative technologies. Yeah, yeah, I think there is, that connection is re-emerging because it is a necessary connection. I mean, interestingly, I, I do think that with, specifically with the histories of the new left, right, like you have, I don't know, Perry Anderson writing a three-part, multiple, multiple, multiple thousands word essays on the situation of the Portuguese anti-colonial struggle, for example, which would be hard to come by now as that being, yeah, you, so you're completely right. But I do think there's a, a very much a possibility for, for reconnecting these struggles. I think that's part of the impetus, the impulse of the book is trying to, trying to bring that back, trying to enable that conversation again, because there was a time when, when that conversation was not just in the British New Left, for example, but even if we're thinking towards the state where, the, towards the United States, where the anti-colonial struggle held a central place in the black radical imagination. It's like Lumumba was, was not only an icon to anti-colonial activists in Africa, but also to black radicals in the United States who theorized his project as part of their project. Or specifically, we have the example, for example, uh, we have the example of, of Malcolm X, who did, before he was assassinated, did a big trip to Africa, met with a lot of different leaders, some very radical leftist leaders like A.M. Babu in, in Zanzibar, and Pio Pinto, for example, in Kenya. And that he did see that there's a strong case to be made that they influenced his shift from black nationalism to pan-Africanism. And I think it's just rediscovering those links that, yes, there, there, is, a, there is a project, there's an anti-racist project that's also anti-imperialist that can link these struggles together. In the US, you might be fighting a, an imperialist white supremacist state that's institutionally racist or in the African case, you might be now fighting a neo-colonial government that enables the exploitation of their country's uh, working people and resources for the benefit of, of imperialist capital. But it's just thinking that we can link these anti-racist and anti-imperialist struggles instead of retreating back into very narrow national formations, which is something that, for example, Afro-pessimism does. It becomes a national story. Anti-racism becomes a US story rather than a global history. And I think it's important for us to do all we can to reconnect these struggles. And I th these conversations are starting to happen too. I mean, I was listening to another podcast um, recently where they had the Kenya Organic Intellectuals Network, which is an activist intellectual network, very much anti-imperialist, fighting neocolonialism. And they were an American podcast talking to an American leftist audience. So I think that conversation is coming back to the forefront because it's necessary. And, you know, I think there's a recognition that these politics are not outdated as in the era of neoliberal triumphalism would have been claimed. 
or that actually these are valuable politics that are of use for us going forward or maybe even necessary for us going forward. So my last question, and, and this is not something addressed in the book, of course, but the recent BRICS summit at which it was announced that Argentina, Egypt, Ethiopia, Iran, Saudi Arabia and the UAE had been invited to join the bloc. Um, that summit has been hailed in some quarters as being a challenge to US hegemony and, and being very much in the style of the Bandung conference. What do you make of that kind of comparison between BRICS or, or rather BRICS plus and Bandung? Well, there's, it's the, the, the comparison... The BRICS do like to see themselves as inheritor of the of the Bandung project, even though there's very little that actually connects them in 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 a coherent way. The Bandung project is 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 a radical nationalist project where there's at least you have the hope from the left that it would be uh, further radicalized by socialist movements on the ground. But now with the BRICS in its current iteration has very little to do with this radical nationalism that could potentially veer into the anti-imperialist socialist politics. I mean, the BRICS project really at its core, the contemporary BRICS project is a project about closer trade and, and diplomatic and economic coordination. coordination. Um, there's a hope that by banding together as the global south, can economic cooperation can lead to a break with imperialism dominated by the imperial powers of the global north, specifically there's a project of undermining the U.S. hegemony and the influence of the dollar. But the ideological, I think the crux is the ideological orientation, because all of these countries that are involved in the project, the core countries, if we look at Russia or if we look at India under, under, under Modi, which is essentially an, an ethno-nationalist or like there's an attempt to enforce an ethno-nationalist politics um, that has very little to do with any form of radical radical nationalism as like a project. These are large-scale capitalist development projects focused on South-South cooperation. And I think with the BRICS specifically, you're looking at a country like South Africa, for example, where it's Cyril Ramaphosa is a former trade union activist, yes, but fundamentally opposed to workers' rights in his, in his own country. So in absence of political movements within those nations against neocolonialism, I don't know what value or what, what we can really draw from from these expansion of the BRICS. And I think the inclusion of the of the newer members, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, doesn't really help this project and its radical potential. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating the show on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast app you use. It really does help to bring in new listeners. The show's music and graphic design is produced by Planet B Productions. I'll be back with the regular show soon. Thanks for listening. Thank you.